Welcome to Newport Beach in the Rearview Mirror, a podcast about the events and people, famous and forgotten, that shaped Newport Beach. I'm Bill Lobdell. Ah, what do you know? There's going to be a jamboree. What's a jamboree, Jim? Well, it's just about the most important thing that can happen in a boy's life, Bill. A great big outdoor get-together of Boy Scouts from all over the United States. How do you know so much about it, Jim? Well, I, I used to be a Boy Scout back in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Troop 3. Ah, uh, there's going to be Scouts here from Canada, Mexico, England, France, Japan. Almost every place in the world, again. Sounds like another gold rush. Ah, uh, it is kind of like a gold rush. Only the gold these boys are going to be seeking is health and fun, friendship cooperation so they just camp outside right next to nature now they're they're going to camp right down it's very historic ground all of it the irvine ranch right down in there yes on this naked ground a great city will be built which will hold fifty thousand boys it will last for only one week but what a memorable week that will be that was Hollywood movie star Jimmy Stewart and an unidentified announcer, both on horseback, touring the thin, empty hills of Newport Beach on the Irvine Ranch and promoting the third National Boy Scout Jamboree, an event of improbable size that took place in Newport Beach. With 50,000 Boy Scouts and at times, an additional 50,000 guests. It was the largest gathering in one place in the city's history, and it's not even close. In today's episode, we are fortunate enough to have a former Boy Scout who participated in the 1953 Jamboree. His name will be familiar to many locals, 83-year-old Don Webb is simply a Newport Beach legend. First, as a beloved 33-year city employee who rose through the ranks to become public works director, he basically helped build the city from 1968 to 2001. And then, not satisfied, he was elected to the city council and also served as mayor. He's also known by his nickname, Walkin' Don Webb, for his hobby of walking every street in Newport Beach, a feat he has done five times. But for all the professional accolades and community service, Don, who's 83 years old, landed on this podcast for something he did way back when he was 14 years old. As a young teenager, he traveled by train from Tucson, Arizona to Newport Beach to attend the 1953 National Boy Scout Jamboree. And that was only the third National Boy Scout Jamboree in history. So it was a huge deal. The beauty of our interview is that Don allows us to see the Jamboree through the wide and innocent eyes of a Boy Scout who experienced an adventure of a lifetime. But before we get to that, Let's take a look at the history behind one of the most unlikely events ever staged in Newport Beach. In the early 1950s, 
the Boy Scouts of America expressed a desire to hold its next jamboree, and those took place every three or four years, west of the Mississippi for the first time. Word of this trickled down to William Spurgeon, an Irvine Company vice president who was active in scouting. He then asked his boss, Myford Irvine, if an unused portion of the 93,000-acre Irvine Ranch could be used for the Jamboree. The Irvine Company president agreed to set aside 3,000 acres of rolling hills, which would later become Newport Center and the neighborhoods of East Bluff and Big Canyon. But just as importantly, Myford Irvine also offered his companies ample resources to help create a mid-sized city from scratch. This entailed leveling four square miles of land, and yeah, this wasn't an exactly environmentally sensitive time. The Irvine Company also carved out eight miles of dirt roads and helped install the rest of the infrastructure. And of course, this wasn't an entirely altruistic venture by the Irvine Company. Prepping the Jamboree site also left in place the bones for future Irvine Company developments. For example, 50% of the new roads were eventually paved and made permanent, including, of course, Jamboree Road, now a main artery through town. Given the 10.0 degree of difficulty in building from scratch a town of 50,000, which was four times larger than Newport Beach at the time, it seemed beyond Herculean that Jamboree Town, as it was called, took less than a year to build. But then again, when the mighty Irvine Company flexes its muscles, almost anything is possible. By the time Jamboree Town opened on July 17th, 1953, that city, which had a lifespan of less than two weeks, consisted of 30,000 two-man tents, a post office, medical and dental centers, a 150-person police force, fire stations, phone centers made operational by six miles of telephone wire. Jamboree Town also had trading posts, commissaries, a power plant, a bank, 88 miles of water pipes, four miles of sewer pipes, a 16,000-car parking lot, and six amphitheaters, including the main venue that took up 65 acres, seated more than 100,000 spectators. That's the size of the Rose Bowl. And had a stage, well, the size of a football field. Want more? Jamboree Town also had a zoo, an aquarium, an aviary, and miniature farm. This settlement was really a miracle and made possible only by the vast amount of land the Irvine Company had and the passion Myford Irvine felt for the Jamboree. As he told the scouts during opening ceremonies, I can say this is the greatest moment of my life. And I hope for you also. On behalf of the Irvine Ranch, I extend to you a welcome as big as the all outdoors. 
The most moving ceremony at the Jamboree was a convocation, which took place on a Sunday evening and attracted a crowd by one estimate of more than 140,000 people. The climax of the event was when 50,000 scouts, plus their guests, lit and held up individual candles, creating a blanket of flickering light on a steep Newport hillside. A scout named William J. Matusik later published an essay about the scene written from the perspective of one of the candles. That sounds hokey, but actually it worked. Here's one paragraph. Quote, at a given signal, 50,000 pieces of lifeless wax and string burst into living flame. We lived in the hearts and souls of 50,000 scouts, and we will live forever and ever in the memory of all who were there and saw. Unquote. The citizens of Jamboree Town came from every state in the nation, the territories of Hawaii, Alaska, and Puerto Rico, and 16 foreign countries. The seven-day mega-event captured national attention. President Dwight Eisenhower recorded an address to the Boy Scouts. Hollywood's biggest stars put on a two-hour variety show emceed by Bob Hope, who joked to the Scouts about the Jamboree's international nature. Quote, this is the United Nations in short pants. <laughs> Filmmakers made two documentaries and a Scout-crazed nation watched the Jamboree on television. There are so many fun slash amazing facts about the Jamboree that it's nearly impossible to stuff them all into one episode, but here are 11 of my favorites. Number one, Richard Nixon, then Vice President of the United States, spoke at the Jamboree and spent a Saturday night there as an honorary scout. He slept in a tent ate breakfast the next day with his fellow scouts, and most surprisingly, did all of this while wearing shorts. Nixon wasn't exactly an informal guy, so becoming a Boy Scout was completely out of character for him. Remember, Nixon, as president, used to walk the beach at San Onofre, which was just steps from the Western White House, wearing a dark business suit tie, and wing-tipped shoes. That was his version of relaxing. Favorite fact number two. The fee for the Jamboree was just $48 per boy, and because the event turned a profit, a refund of $13.50 was given to each scout. So the net price was $34.50 for at least seven days, and that comes out to less than $5 a day. Favorite fact number three, 75% of the scouts traveled to Newport Beach via one of 105 specially commissioned trains. Once at a Southern California train station, the youth traveled in one of 688 buses to the Jamboree. 10,000 scouts arrived daily in the days leading up to the event. Number four, of course, trains weren't the only means of transportation. 
five Canadian scouts took a $700 cab ride from Montreal to Newport Beach, a journey that took five days and was said to be cheaper than taking the train. But upon arriving at the Jamboree, the scouts were informed that they couldn't stay because they had forgotten to make reservations. Thankfully, a non-bureaucrat took over and found them a camping site, which couldn't be very hard among 3,000 acres. In addition to cab rides, trains, buses, and automobiles, seven scouts from the San Fernando Valley found another way to get to the Jamboree. They hiked for seven days to get to Newport Beach. Favorite fact number five. The scouts ate 1.2 million tons of food and drink. Okay, let's break down those vast quantities per Boy Scout. 10 eggs per Scout, three donuts, two boxes of frozen chicken, one pound of ground beef, a half pound each of fresh chicken, hot dogs, steaks, and lunch meat, and to go with that, three loaves of bread, 2.5 quarts of milk, 15 bottles of soft drinks, and one and a half pies. And there were fruits and vegetables, the amount of which weren't quantified, which I think shows <laughs> their importance in the Boy Scouts' camping diet. All of this and more created 1.5 tons of trash daily, the bulk of which came from 8 million paper plates. Number six, to cook all that food, 48 railroad carloads of charcoal were brought in. Let that sink in for a minute. 48 railroad cars full of charcoal. Another measure of the insane scale of the event. Favorite fact number seven. The Jamboree's motto, forward on Liberty's team, could be seen everywhere. It was a slogan that reflected the ongoing Cold War, which had consumed America. Around the campfires and at large assemblies, scout leaders and guest speakers often contrasted democracy and the democratically run and God-fearing Boy Scouts of America with godless communism and compulsory membership in Marxist organizations. In his address at the Jamboree, Vice President Nixon said, quote, It is far more important than perhaps you realize that this extraordinary organization of yours has dedicated itself to the spiritual side of youth growth as well as the physical, and that the establishment mm -hmm. of peace is the concern of every one of you. Favorite fact number eight. Speaking of God, religious services at the Jamboree included the Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, and Buddhist faiths. And that was insanely inclusive in 1953. The ninth favorite fact. The U.S. Marine Corps put in place a temporary bridge over the Upper Newport Bay slash San Diego Creek near where the Fletcher Jones Mercedes dealership is today to handle the massive amount of traffic the Jamboree generated. The temporary bridge was installed next to the permanent two-lane wooden bridge that was there at the time. 
favorite fact number 10. Jamboree Town had its own phone number. It was Jamboree 1953, which in those days meant J-A, the start of Jamboree, or 52, and then 1953. So 52, 1953. And if you're keeping count, there were only six digits for a phone number back then. The 11th and final favorite fact. Workers dug 4,500 latrines. And after the Jamboree, eucalyptus trees were planted in many of those holes. So if you see a mature eucalyptus tree in Newport Center, East Bluff, Big Canyon area, you now know what kick-started its growth. And with that, it's time for our interview with Don Webb. Don, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. I'm happy to talk about the past. Excellent. Well, let's start at the beginning like we normally do. Can you give us a little background about your childhood and why you joined the Boy Scouts? I started off uh, my school career. My, my parents moved from Georgia to Texas to Tucson, Arizona. So I started school in 1945 in Tucson. And uh, one of the things that I guess kind of attracted me was the the Cub Scouts got to wear uniforms and they, they kind of stood out. For some reason or another, that that must have been a, a something that moved me. My parents were willing to do a Cub Scout den, and and so uh, I joined the Cub Scouts, and then two years later, uh, I joined the Boy Scout, and which was when you get to be a twelve years old, then you could go from Cub Scouts to Boy Scouts. Let's go to um, talk about the Jamboree. Do you remember when you first heard that you were going to attend the Jamboree and what your feelings were? Well, the Jamboree was was something that was advertised. This was the third Jamboree, so there weren't very many for people to to remember. And as a Boy Scout, they sent uh, the, the the scouting magazine advertised the Jamboree coming up, and and so I it, it interested me. And I applied, you had to apply six or eight months in advance. And they had a limited number that could come from uh, any particular area. And uh, I was accepted. And from uh, in probably early 1953, and I was able to then start raising some money because there was a jamboree fee of $48 just to go. But you had to have uniforms two or three different, I think probably three different sets of uniforms, which I normally would have only had one set. And do you remember what you did to raise that money? Well, um, I, I actually, in my, I have a kind of a notebook with memorabilia. And I noticed I had one thank you letter that I sent to my uncle in Georgia in April of that year, thanking him for $25. So I, I must've asked him a whole bunch of relatives for support and, uh, Plus, I, I mowed lawns and did uh, yard work and uh, was able to, uh, my father was a math professor, so we didn't have a whole lot of extra cash flowing around. And, and uh, so it was, I did, did my tasks and, and earned the money. Yeah, you're going to Newport Beach. Can you describe the journey? No, I wasn't going to Newport Beach. Okay, go ahead. I was going to the Irvine Ranch. All right, okay. Okay, going to the Irvine Ranch, before you got there, what are your visions of the Irvine Ranch and then how to describe the journey? Well, that's two different uh, things. Uh, 
let me start off by saying I really didn't have a vision of what the Irvine Ranch was. I guess back then we didn't have much television, so everything was radio. And I, I remembered listening to the Lone Ranger and and a number of other Western programs. And so I mentally had an idea of what uh, a ranch would look like. I assumed it would have lots of cows and and cowboys. <laughs> right. Well, that wasn't really what I we we came up with. The journey was something different. Uh, uh, we got together on uh, the day after my 14th birthday is when we left. And we gathered about uh, eight or nine o'clock at night uh, in Tucson. Uh, there were 208 scouts, or scouts and adults. And we loaded into school buses for the journey. And so there was probably five or six school buses. Uh, we started off again in the middle of the night and the reason for that is it's very hot in Yuma, which we had to drive through. And these school buses back in 1953 had never heard of air conditioning. I don't think even any vehicles had air conditioning. Or I remember on one of our trips, we used to hang wet rags out the window and hope that would cool things off. But <laughs> wasn't much better than that. We uh, stopped in Gila Bend for about an hour. Uh, in the middle of the night, uh, just to, for restroom stops and snacks, and probably stopped at least once or twice more. We arrived at the uh, Marine Corps recruit station in San Diego Monday morning about noon, and uh, they assigned us quarters, fed us first, assigned us to quarters, and then uh, that afternoon we got on a landing craft. It was 200 of us. They could hold 500. And they gave us a tour of the harbor. We came back, had uh, marine food, and and the next morning we were all ready to, to head towards the jamboree. But first, we did uh, probably spent three or four hours at the San Diego Zoo. Ended up arriving at the jamboree site. That would be Tuesday afternoon, fairly late. I don't remember what time. Probably four or five. And. Uh, not all 50,000 scouts arrived at once. That would have been a, a nightmare. So they scheduled us to, to arrive in, in three days. And we were part of the first group. When we arrived, we saw the what I consider rolling hills with lots of dusty roads and, and not much landscaping because they, they'd really gotten rid of almost all the brush that was out there. So it was, was a pretty dusty uh, area. You could uh, see the ocean out in the distance in the back bay. There wasn't a single building on on the area, which was from MacArthur Boulevard to the bay and from Coast Highway all the way up to San Diego Creek or about where Fletcher Jones is. There wasn't a single building. So if you can imagine what that might look like in your own mind, uh, there were, they had put in roads each site and, and a troop would have about a 90-foot square site. Each site had a latrine tent and a shower tent and a spigot of water, and that was about it. Uh, we all brought things to, to decorate, make fences around our, our enclosures, and so that when we got there, we had uh, semi-trucks along with us that carried most of our baggage, and and the supplies uh, so that we unloaded. Probably got camp set up partially that night, uh, at least some of the tents for you to sleep in. And then the next morning, of course, we finished the setup. 
our site was up near the intersection of, of uh, Jamboree and what is now East Bluff. So you're 14 years old. You arrive here after a, a seems like a very interesting journey through, you know, the San Diego and the Marine uh, base there. What were your emotions? What were your first impressions of the Irvine Ranch and uh, the Jamboree itself? <laughs> well, it's hard to, to remember exactly what my impressions were other than this was pretty barren land. However, you did have the, the back bay off in the distance and you could see the ocean. Again, no trees, no bushes. It was dusty. I've watched a, a movie that they made of it and I everywhere you'd see the scouts marching in groups, you'd see their feet kicking up dust. Mm-hmm. So it was extremely dry. But as, as a youth, I had traveled uh, with my family quite extensively we lived in, in Arizona and my mother was from Georgia and, and every year we'd go back and spend part of the summer there. So my father would take us sometimes to Georgia by way of, of Michigan or New York. Uh, so we, I had traveled extensively and, and so I had visited a lot of different places. So it wasn't so new to me to go to 500 miles from home. The new part was doing it with boys my age. And just the camaraderie that you, you come up with, with, with being with uh, somebody that has a lot of the same experiences that you have. One of the most breathtaking venues at the Jamboree was that main amphitheater. It held 75,000 people, and some say it held 150,000 people. And it had a stage the size of a football field. And I, I can't figure out, Don... Where exactly was it located? Can you help? The stage would be the Corona Mar High School parking lot and buildings and part of the athletic fields. And behind the athletic fields were campsites. Our campsite was above it. We were on the the bluff above Corona Mar High School. So the scouts would all sit on the slope, look down into the, the, the level area that events that occurred in that particular amphitheater and that was the opening ceremony the convocation and the closing ceremony so let's talk about jamboree road for a second they made that for the jamboree i'm i'm always a little confused on it ended it at the jamboree where did it start and why was that needed well you had fifty thousand people and you probably had several hundred thousand people that visited if you can imagine trying to get that many people into a, 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 an area with no roads and the supplies necessary, uh, there was like uh, 48 uh, railroad cars full of charcoal that had to be distributed amongst all the scouts for the cooking, as well as as uh, 700 or 800,000 quarts of milk. And uh, when you start going through the huge quantities of supplies for just food, but you also had to get the people in and out. So they took a road grader out, very little cut and fill, and started, uh, well, you know where Back Bay Drive is. That Back then it was called Palisades Road. And right at the intersection of what is now Jamboree and Bristol, that was Palisade, Palisades Road. And uh, the Jamboree did not go across uh, Bristol there. It started at that point. 
So you come down Bristol, Palisades, make a, a, a right turn, and that was the northerly access. Or you could use MacArthur Boulevard, which was a paved roadway. Jamboree at that time was, was, was a dirt road. And then it came into the site pretty much following the alignment that it has down through Big Canyon. And then that's where it veers more towards Fashion Island to service the, the campsites that were over in that area. And then there was a, a, a branch that made a right turn and went down to Coast Highway and Jamboree, it, except that it, it didn't quite line up with Marine Avenue as it goes down to Balboa Island. Uh, but at any rate, it was just a two-lane dirt road. Did you ever go over that temporary bridge the Marines built? Okay, o you're talking about the, the Bailey Bay? Bridge. Yeah. Uh, where the two Jamboree Road bridges are, if you go upstream about 100 feet, it's where the old wooden bridge was. Now, the wooden bridge at the time of the Jamboree was a very narrow two lanes, hardly suitable for two-way traffic. So the uh, people that were working on the Jamboree worked with the Seabees uh, that were down in, in uh, Camp Pendleton, the Marine Seabees, to put together a Bailey Bridge. Can you give us an idea of like how the distribution and cooking of food worked for 50,000 hungry kids? You had different areas and tents where the scouts had to go to a tent once a day to pick up the food for that day. And they didn't have any vehicles, they walked. So you had these commissary tents that were set up strategically around the area. So you probably didn't ever have to walk more than a half a mile, three quarters of a mile to get to your commissary, but that means you had to carry all the food back and you would, you would do it by patrols. So you had 2,500 troops, multiply that times four, that's how many different groups was working. About 10,000 groups a day, you had to service to get just food out to your your campsites. And was uh, all that food cooked over a uh, campfire? Charcoal fires. Every other lunch was hot. Many of the breakfasts would have cereal rather than cooked food just because of the time it takes to start and, and clean up. You almost always had hot meals uh, in the evening. So uh, it's uh, <laughs> quite a uh, quite a feat to to do that, but that's what Boy Scouts is all about. Right. You don't have electric ranges and gas stoves when you're going on a backpacking trip. You have to carry everything with you. Was there a typical day, or was every day different there? Well, they 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 had a specific schedule that they that we were supposed to follow. You, at 7.30 in the morning, you'd have reveling. And literally, the troops would blow bugles to get everybody out. You'd have get, breakfast was scheduled for 8.15. You had to everything, have everything cleaned up so that you could have a flag raising ceremony at 9. At 10, you were released to your, go to activities, which meant you could you had a lot of different things that you could go do. You would come back and have lunch at 12.30. Uh, again, activities at around three, uh, uh, returning for supper at, at 6.30. Again, when you say returning, you don't just show up at 6.30. You got to get back early enough because two guys in each patrol is going to have to do the cooking. And then you'll have cleanup guys that would have to help 
otherwise. So that, and you shared it. You had, uh, it was, we were there for 10 or 12 days, which meant that everybody had to be the head cook at least once during the, the event. Uh, then at, at 8 30 is when you'd have your programs. You got to remember this is in July. So that if you wanted some darkness there, you had to wait until 8 30 or 9 before it got dark. And then you'd had taps. Everybody's supposed to be back in the tent about 10 30. And describe some of the activities that you did there. Okay, when we got there early, we, we were three days early. That was when they uh, put together excursions. The first day, we got to go to Knott'sbury Farm. And it was a, not nearly as modern as it is today, but they had a ghost town. And uh, they had the, they did the train ride where you had the, the banditos robbing the train. The lasting experience I had from that, and it still affects me today, is that's where I learned about cinnamon jelly beans. <laughs> and I, 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 I got them at the, uh, the, the general store there, and I've, I've craved them the rest of my life. Ah. And my wife always gives them to me for sure on Valentine's Day. Don, what other activities did you do once the actual jamboree started? Each section had huge tents that the scouts would gather in and, and just meet and talk and, and straight trade things. They had... Uh, events where you would do uh, uh, lashing and, and building towers out of wood. Uh, you had other scouting skills uh, that were done. like, for instance, when Harbor Cove was developed, and that's the development that is right next to the police station on Jamboree and the extension of, of Santa Barbara, they had archaeologists that went through the site because it was an old Indian site, and they had to separate artifacts between the Indian artifacts and the artifacts the scouts had left from the Jamboree. And the, the, what puzzled them initially was, was they found uh, some obsidian, which isn't native to the area or to the, to the local Indians there. I don't know what and, that is. Uh, flint chippings and that type okay. of thing. And apparently that was a, one of the scout tasks were there was making uh, tools out of stone. And so, uh, things like uh, they, they came across uh, a coin they dug up, and it was one that we, they gave us as souvenirs. And I have one here that uh, has on the front uh, a covered wagon, which is the symbol of the Jamboree. And on the back, the inscription of the coin says, commemorating the Third National Jamboree for thousands of members of the Boy Scouts of America in the spirit of brotherhood and patriotism reaffirmed their pledge to go forward on the Liberty team, July, 1953. So obviously that for the archeologists that established the data <laughs> yeah, really, because not many of them uh, were uh, familiar with it. They were younger and hadn't heard about it. Let's go back for a moment to the trading. Did, did that seem like a big, big thing at the Jamboree? Did you, did you do sure, trading I, and what, what did you, uh, I, I don't do you remember? remember exactly what we did. It's kind of interesting, you know, President Nixon, our Vice President Nixon indicated that that when he went into the trading tent, uh, everybody had uh, wanted to get something. And so he had autographed pins and he said he traded one pin for a to a Texas boy for a rattlesnake skin. <laughs> so a lot of the scouts were quite imaginative. They like, for instance, uh, the ones from Wisconsin would would what's the name of the. Uh, Paul Bunyan, 
would would come back and say, "Well, this is a this is a tooth of Paul Bunyan," and you, know, <laughs> you had arrowheads that, that they, they had carved out of stone, and this is some of the things that they found in the archaeological dig. Uh, but you had alligator skins, uh, products of of from farms. And it seemed like there was a theme running through the whole jamboree about it was during the Cold War. So it was sort of liberty versus communism, free choice versus compulsory clubs or organizations. Did you, did you feel that as a kid or in retrospect? Did you well, as, as a kid, I didn't really realize that's what they were doing. But when I read about it now, particularly the speeches that, that Nixon gave and then the, the president, President Eisenhower uh, had a, 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 a televised presentation that he made and he spoke about this this couldn't occur in, in the communist countries and and the, the freedoms and liberties that we experience were, were something that were, were unique to this type of event and, and they were quite uh, interested in in making sure that we appreciated that uh, the the Liberty Bell was something that they had a replica of it at the the Avenue of Flags, which was the, the headquarters. Liberty was very definitely something that was a theme throughout the event. And what was your favorite uh, moment of the event or lasting memory? The, the thing that I remember when people ask me is the candlelight ceremony that was at the Sunday convocation. That's where Nixon spoke, but it was primarily a service that recognized all the various different faiths throughout the, the evening. Uh, we closed the, the convocation with a candlelight ceremony. Each scout had been given a, a small wax candle with a little paper thing to make sure the wax didn't get on your hand. And, and we all had matches or to light our fires, of course. <laughs> and uh, at, at the end, they, they had us light the candles to where I'm sure there, there were 45 to 50,000 scouts, but then there was probably another 20 or 30,000 adults that, that were there as visitors. And if you can imagine a hillside with that many people sitting on it, with each one of them holding a candle, uh, it, it created a, a light and, and an experience. It was, it was better than a fireworks show. Uh, it was something that that uh, was in just engraved into my memory. And, I, and at the close, they had us to put the candles out and then uh, put them in our, our left shirt pocket over our hearts so that we could remember uh, the, the, the sentiment of the, the, the jamboree and the event. It's interesting when I was cleaning my mother's house out, looking through old old things. I remember coming across an old candle in one of the drawers. At the time, I didn't remember what's what it was from, but I, as I think back on it, I'm pretty sure that was the candle that I brought back to the jamboree, and that was 1997, which is almost 45 years later. So it, it made enough of an impression that that, that I kept the candle. Wow. Okay, you're packing up to go home. What were your overall thoughts or emotions uh what did you think <laughs> well i i guess the the last day that we had with 
Thursday, and that was when the closing event was, and they had us start taking down, taking apart the uh, the camp during the, most of the day and, and getting things packed. We, I guess, kept a few tents up and kept our bedrolls out and that type of thing. We had the closing ceremony, but it, it, it's always, when you get to an end of a camp or anything, you always think back of how much fun you'd had. And probably when you, this isn't all romantic and, and that type of thing, but I probably was thinking, gosh, it sure is going to be nice to get a comfortable bed, be able to take a shower and get some clean clothes. <laughs> other than that, it was that we were looking forward to, uh, uh, not particularly looking forward with enthusiasm to attend a 12 hour bus ride through the hot desert. But uh, the experiences that we'd had were, were so great that, that, that it, it has had a very lasting effect on me. And one of the effects I'm guessing is that you actually wound up in uh, Newport Beach. Did the Jamboree play a role in that? Jamboree didn't really play much of a role in that. I ended up in Newport because I, in my fraternity, I had several friends that were from Orange County. So when I got out of the Army, I came to Orange County to find a job. I started looking up the, the Caltrans up in L.A., and they said, you're an idiot if you want to go to los angeles to work you should orange county is so perfect and so i ended up getting a job in uh, santa Ana, the orange county flood control district where i met a, a fellow that that introduced me to sailing and of course we sailed in newport harbor and it took me about eight or nine months after i got here before i found out about sailing in newport harbor and and i pretty soon had an apartment in in the uh, Costa Mesa and moved to down to the peninsula on 42nd Street. And I've been here ever since. There just isn't a better place you can live. I ended up spending uh, most of my engineering career working for the city's public works department. I started there in 1968 and retired in 2001. Was elected to the city council in 2002 for, and I was on the council for eight years and served as mayor for our centennial year in 2006. So Newport has been really a part of my life starting in 1953. And uh, it's interesting for me to have participated in in the construction of Jamboree Road uh, from a, a two-lane paved roadway to the six-lane uh, arterial that it is today. Uh, and, and many of the other sites around town yeah, I was going to ask you, as public works director, then council member, then mayor, as you drive by Newport Center, East Bluff, any of the area that was part of the Jamboree site, thoughts and feelings that, uh, <laughs> that you have? I can't drive down Jamboree Road without, as I go through it, saying, well, oh, over there was was uh, this particular area. I, I look out towards the bay, and, and that's where... Uh, they probably had the rodeo. Monty Montana was there. Uh, up to the to the right hand side, where the golf course ends, is where they had their rifle ranges. And as I, I going go up the slope towards East Bluff, that's where the, the the Avenue of the Flags were, and the headquarters. So as I drive down Jamboree, I I just mentally think about it. And, oh, I was my tent was right over there, and. Uh, I go through, go to Fashion Island, and and when I moved to town in '65, Fashion Island wasn't open yet. 
And so it was still, it was under construction, but I think of, of, gee, this was just dirt. Look at all these skyscrapers that are there now. Sure. Uh, being in public works uh, allowed me the opportunity to, to, to truly participate in, in, in building Newport. And I, I always think about, no matter where I am in the city, what I might have had to do with with the infrastructure that was that I'm using where I am, and particularly uh, when I get over to the other side of the bay, I live on the, the west side. Get over to the other side of the bay, it's just uh, I just think that gee, this is where fifty thousand scouts were, and I was part of that. Don, how would you sum up the Jamboree experience? It was a wonderful opportunity for youths to gather and learn about each other, exchange experiences, and to show that we can all in, enjoy a life together. And we, everybody was working in very close confines, but there were there just weren't any animosities that, that, that appeared. It was just a it was an event that everybody was there to have a good time and we did. Don, thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, really interesting stuff, and I appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoy talking about my experiences. I really love an interview where you get a firsthand account of history. So once again, we thank and appreciate you, Don Webb. Thanks for getting into this podcast time machine with me and traveling back to the summer of 1953 to have a look at what happened when 50,000 Boy Scouts and their leaders came to Newport Beach. We'll see you next time. Anna, 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 So if you see a Luke, so if you, see, <clears throat> so if you see a Luke, so if you see a eucalyptus tree, but for all the professional, al but for all the professional, al mm. but for all the professional, alkalades, alkalades. Oh.